This episode of The Oxford Comment includes discussion of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. September falls as one of the months when students are at an increased risk of sexual assault. The first semester of college, August through November, is when more than 50% of all college sexual assaults occur. I'm Erin Katie Meehan, and I'll be your host for this episode of The Oxford Comment as we explore how our notions of consent are formed and solidified. Planned Parenthood defines sexual consent as an agreement to participate in a sexual activity. Consent is freely given, reversible, informed, enthusiastic, and specific according to their guidelines. The topic of what is consent has been making headlines in the wake of the Me Too movement, which has sought to reframe and expand the global conversation around sexual violence. But how is our understanding of consent formed? In an op-ed for the Washington Post, Shana Westlake used her own daughter as an example of how consent can be overlooked in adolescence. She describes a time when her daughter is playing with a friend, but as the friend pulls her into a big hug, she becomes visibly uncomfortable, despite the cooing from the adult supervising them. The balance lies in the right amount of affection being good for a child's development. Westlake explains that setting limits helps form a child's boundaries of consent. Sexuality expert Logan Levkoff says that when children get mixed messages, they can grow up not to respect boundaries. This is especially true for what Levkoff calls affection aggressors, children who hug and kiss their peers without noticing or paying attention to whether that affection is unwanted. So how does this foundation of aggressive affection lead to blurred lines of consent later in life? How children are taught consent will affect how they perceive the topic in books, television, and their reality as they grow up. On this episode of The Oxford Comment, we're joined by Donna Freitas, author of Consent on Campus, and Brendan Keeley, author of All American Boys, to further discuss the role consent plays from childhood to college campuses and into adulthood. Donna, what drew you to research the topic of consent on college campuses? So the reason why I ended up uh, in a conversation about consent on campus is there's a couple of reasons. One is when I did my initial research for, for Sex and the Soul, which is another book I've written about sex on campus. Um, when I was doing that research, I had a number of uh, young women who, when they told me the story of a encounter, sexual intimacy or a hookup, their story was a story of sexual assault. And uh, I knew that when they were telling me except they didn't name it as a sexual assault during the interview. And I felt very um, startled when I realized that they didn't seem to know that they were sexually assaulted when there were when there was clearly consent was absent in the encounters. And I remember um, after that interview process, I thought, we need to talk about this. Like, we need to talk about how um, students are brushing off uh, sexual assaults as though they're no big deal. Like, what is going on in the culture that 
that is allowing them to, to tell the story that way. And so uh, I began to want to talk about consent on campus and say, hey, we have to do this. And um, before 2011, so before the um, April 2011 letter about Title IX from the Obama administration, colleges weren't too excited to have me talk about sexual assault. And then since 2011, colleges now, they're scrambling to have that conversation. And so it's been interesting for me to sort of um, be a part of that conversation for over 10 years now, but also to see the shift. And the other thing that happened, though, is because I've I've been in this conversation for so long, I felt, and because I've gone to so many different, I've been to almost 200 colleges and universities talking about these issues. And I I really began to form some opinions about what I thought we could do. And they, they came from both my nonfiction research, um, but also my work with um, writing and a narrative in my creative life. And so, I began to um, to think, oh, I really have an argument to make here, and I, I'm in this interesting position where I've seen, um, I've been to so many different communities, and I've also worked for student affairs, by the way, like I used to work for student affairs, um, and so they, are, they tend to be the people who are in charge of consent education on campus, and so I felt like I, um, I, I had a kind of vision about what we might do at the university level to do better consent education. Um, but also, I I know that I believe and I have always believed that universities are, are special places. They have a responsibility, I believe, um, for the, toward the public good and that um, they are privileged institutions with unbelievable resources and systemic sexual violence requires unbelievable resources to try to deal with. And so I've been saddened that universities have not stepped up to try to deal with what I see as a kind of crisis in our communities. Can you walk us through your research process? Oh, sure. Well, so, I mean, this though is, this is a manifesto. Like I didn't, well, I did research for this about um, for consent on campus, I did research about Title IX and about, you know, um, toxic masculinity and about, you know, all sorts of um, related issues and what, you know, what the statistics are around sexual assault on campus, all like all the sort of related research about that. But in terms of my my research where I've interviewed students, I do both qualitative and quantitative research. Um, generally, I have, you know, I'll travel around the country and I'll sit down with students one on one you know, in person, in private interviews that last from one to two hours. And then I also do um, online surveys uh, with lots of students, like sometimes thousands of students. And uh, generally I favor, even though you can get quantitative um, data out of those um, surveys, uh, I also like to provide, I, I like to do essay surveys. So I like to get students to tell stories in their surveys which are really hard to code, but um, I think they're worth it <laughs> because you really begin to see um, patterns in the stories that the students tell emerging. And I think that's really important um, data. But so I've done two big national studies um, of college students in the last uh, 10 years or so. And, and yeah, so that's my research background. From your one-on-one experience with students, 
Have you found fiction or nonfiction to have a bigger impact on how they think about consent? So um, to me, I feel like the go-to teaching tools for consent should be stories. It should be should be memoir, it should be essays, it should be novels, YA novels, non-YA novels, all sorts of um, short stories. Uh, the reason why is because, or even just, um, I think about how, you know, one of the stories that students have talked most about to me over the years is the story I tell in the intro to Sex and the Soul. I told the entire story of one young woman uh, who I called Amy, that I had interviewed. And in her interview, she reported a sexual assault without naming it. And I can't tell you how many people have talked about Amy and classes have discussed Amy and her entire story. And it's really what I learned from students talking about her that made me began to realize, oh, stories are the way in. Because that story about Amy and all the other stories that I tell of students and Sex and the Soul um, empower, you know, readers, you know, college students to talk about the issues, really complicated issues, without implicating themselves. And so they are able to talk about Amy or talk about how they know someone like Amy on campus um, in, in order to talk about sexual assault and everything that happened to her and, you know, without having to reveal anything personal about themselves. And so I began to realize that stories about someone else are just novels, you know, sort of fiction. Um, what they give us are a way into really complex conversations um, in a safe way. And I think uh, we often make the mistake of, you know, like colleges all the time, they'll invite me to campus and one of the things they'll try to make me do is they'll like try to put me in a room without anybody else from the college and they'll hurt all these students in, and they'll want me to like get the students to tell me everything that's going on. And I refuse to do events like that um, because, you know, that's, not that's not a good idea and i don't want students to confess to me all of their secrets um however i will have a conversation with students who've read a story or something like it ahead of time and then we can talk about all those issues with regard to that story because it gives them some some distance from themselves so anyway i think that um through narrative we can have the complex difficult conversations that we need to have and i think we can do it in a safe way you invited Brendan Keeley in to join us today. Could you provide our listeners with some background around who Brendan is and why it's important to have a conversation about consent in young adult fiction? So Brendan Keeley is a, um, a fellow YA novelist and friend, and you know he has written um, a number of books that deal with really complicated issues of relationships and consent, including his newest book, um, Tradition, which just came out a few months ago. And he and I have been in conversation about our mutual interest in these issues and how much we care about them. And so, um, so I thought we would be good conversation partners for this. Glad to be here. Well, so uh, I guess I'll, I'll start things off by um, giving a little bit of context, at least for for my work, um, I've been writing about sex on campus for a long time, and I've thought a lot about, especially with my young adult novels, 
uh, how some of the things I've learned from college students might factor into the ways in which I address sex and intimacy in the relationships that I write for my characters. Um, but over the years, um, and especially since 2011, um, when the Obama administration made Title IX a big issue for universities, consent has really come to the forefront of the conversations I've been involved in. And so it's it's something that I've thought so much about in my, my nonfiction work, which is how I ended up writing a manifesto about it for college communities. But I've thought about it more and more in terms of the characters. I write like what sorts of what sorts of relationships do I want my characters to have, but also how do I want them to communicate about sex, you know, when they are in those relationships. And it's been it's become important to me to model the complexity of that communication, but also to make sure that it's that it's there. So Yeah, as I listen to you uh, talk about that, I think about how when I was uh, growing up, the issue of consent was either taught or, or, or talked around <laughs> as opposed to really <laughs> yeah. addressed um, explicitly and directly, which seems to defeat the purpose of what consent is all mm-hmm. about. Um, well, how did you learn about consent? Did it, anyone actually teach you? Yeah, well, and that's what's so interesting about this is that the way that you're, you're framing it in a, in a way reminds me of how I feel like I was taught it through fear that uh, as a man in particular, that the issues of consent were, you better not go harm someone. And mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting way of thinking about it from, from, this, from a male perspective, at least, thinking sort of solely in my hetero binary way, <laughs> but thinking about the fact that older men in, in, say, gym class or my own father or people in my community would say, you have to think about sex in a way that protects <laughs> a woman's mm-hmm. safety. And I think about that because ultimately I think that still is objectifying women and robbing them of their agency in some way. Um, instead of prioritizing a conversation of two mutually agent uh, folks in conversation. And I think about that a lot because I think about when we lose consent later I think it's because of that, it's that same issue of objectification and not seeing the other person there. Um, I'm thinking of some anecdotes in your, in your book <laughs> that are very striking in particular. As a man, you know, growing up, often it was, you know, don't have sex with a woman because you'll get her pregnant or you'll get diseases mm-hmm. or, you know, you'll screw up the psychology of the woman. And I think about that a lot because none of that spoke about my own psychology and how I was forming a sense of sexual conversation, intimacy, and my own understanding of what consent meant. And I have another anecdote that I'll get to later that makes me, that made me think in another way, but it makes me think about some of the things that you brought up in your book about, even in the very beginning, the normalization of a sense that uh, consent isn't part of the conversation. Well, so I I was just thinking, because we were talking about um, how we learned about consent, and I feel like I learned about it um, in well in college. I remember learning two things. This was you know back in the '90s, so a very long time ago. I learned that um, one in four women are 
raped before they graduate. I remember that statistic. Yeah. They gave us that statistic. And then I remember they gave all the women on campus rape whistles, mm. but they didn't tell us what to do with them. We just knew they were rape whistles. And they were on like a like a little string, you know, like a, they put you could put around your neck. <laughs> and so my roommates and I, like we just had them in the house because everyone had them. And we, they were such a they were such a joke. There was no conversation around them. We used to blow them when we were mad at each other or when we wanted something to get done in the house. And um, Sarah Silverman has a really hilarious uh, like skit about or bit about rape whistles and how useless they are. And so I think about how. Um, you know, that's such an impoverished way to talk about such a yeah. difficult issue. And I feel like in, in so many ways, um, I wasn't able to begin to really think about the complexity of these issues until I began writing and teaching about it. I mm-hmm. think that is when I began to hear students, my students talking about stories that didn't it well with me (laughs) and I realized like oh this is not just an innate issue like I sort of knew when I was growing up or I had a sense of what was right and what was wrong around sexual intimacy for better or worse even though I didn't have a good education around it but um so I felt I knew that but when I talked to my students sometimes I would hear them tell me stories that really gave me pause or I thought something is wrong here and I guess I've really been trying to unpack the nuances of all of these issues in all the different ways that I write. And I would love you, Brendan, to talk a little bit about why you're doing this in the books that you're doing and also just what it means for you to be doing this as as a man. Sure. As I'm hearing you think about or talk about the complexities of the conversation around consent, part of that's what motivates me to write about to write specifically about consent in many of my uh, young adult novels. In fact, I've written, published four, (laughs) written is a different question, and in three of those there are issues of consent at the heart of the story. As I was explaining before about the kind of ways that I learned about consent from a kind of top-down from older men telling me, Brendan Kiley, as a man, what consent is about, I had very conflicting messages from my peers. If we all understand that we're supposed to be after a yes. A yes is important, but I frame it that way, you know, I'm mocking my own sensibility there because it really did become a goal. I remember so specifically in high school, this this sense of not the old like notches on a bedpost or something like that, but in, but in practice, it is kind of like that. The sensibility of you know, how many dates are you going to have, uh, how many proms are you going to go to, and how many, add how many proms, how many girls are you going to sleep with. I mean, it was really fairly explicitly discussed, and not among all groups of friends, some groups more than others, but men really push each other into that kind of a competitive attitude towards, towards sex. So consent becomes just an obstacle. Like if I'm on the basketball mm-hmm. court and, and I'm on a fast break and there happens to be one defender in front of me, that's consent. You know, I'm still going for the layup. That's a crazy way to think in, in so many ways. And so for me as a young adult author who has teens who are my age, who are, who are now my age when I was thinking about f- sex in that way, I want to reframe the conversation of consent in a way that it didn't exist for me when I was growing up. For me, I want to talk about consent in YA because I want to provide models of both the harmful scenarios but also the positive ones. So in tradition in particular, 
while there is a sexual assault at the heart of the novel, there are also moments and scenes in which we see positive reflections of consent. And sometimes that actually means, are you ready to have sex right now? No. Oh, I hear you. <laughs> Let's come back to this you know, some other time, whatever it might be. That, I think, is also part of the conversation of consent. And that's why I want to do it in YA novels, because I think this is a time when kids are, are uh, beginning to be sexually active. This is also a, a genre of literature that many college students are reading. Um, I, I think it's important to provide them those, both the scenarios in which we don't want it to look this way, but also the scenarios in which we can say it could possibly look this way. The operative word in my in my uh, novel, The Last True Love Story, is yes. <laughs> Every conversation between the young man and the young woman is as a question, and then yes, yes. Can I kiss you here? Yes. Can uh, Can we go into the next room? Yes. All th- I think that's really important, and it can be loving, and uh, and we need to see those examples, and not just the examples that we're used to seeing in media. Well, I guess in a in a perfect world, you know, in in theory. Um, the, the novels that we are writing for middle grade audiences and why um, audiences, you know, regardless of what sort of intimacy is happening um, as authors, we should be thinking about this, this issue. How are we dealing with consent? Not necessarily in an explicit way, like even if we just have two characters that are kissing, how are we setting mm-hmm. up that scene and what are we imagining? Um, you know, how are we making it a, a sort of productive sort of scene in the way that, like, here's a here's a model for how this could work in a positive way? Or I remember um, I was on a panel this summer, and uh, someone had asked about content, you know, in quotes, in, in YA, and what, what's allowed and what's not allowed. And at first I answered, and I said, oh, this is a question about sex, right? Like, it's a content question. It's always a sex question. And so I said, <laughs> like, oh, like, you can have as much sex as you want now in YA. Like, that's sort of, like, <laughs> like the the idea that you can't write about sex in, in YA novels, that's gone. I was like, now the more sex, the better. And I said, there's really no rules. And then I said, no, wait, I lied. I'm going to reframe that. And I, I remember uh, a novel I read not too long ago, a number of years ago, and um, the author, which I'm not going to name, but the author had used uh, an attempted rape as an opportunity for the desired hero to rescue the woman right. and um, as a way to sort of bring them together. And I just remember it was very like upsetting, this scene, and then it was completely just disregarded. And so it was used as a plot device. And mm-hmm. I just remember thinking, okay, no, like you can have all sorts of sex, but you don't get to have a gratuitous rape scene right. in a YA novel. And I mean, frankly, I don't know that we should have it in any novels, but I think especially when we're, we're writing for teens, um, I don't think sexual assault can ever be thought of as a plot device. It has to be you know, dealt with, it has to be unpacked. Like you have to, if you're going to go there, you have to um, sort of go through the process of the aftermath and the impact of it. You can't just sort of leave it hanging. Absolutely. I mean, none of us are plot devices in each other's lives. And I think we have to think of our characters as real people in that way too, especially if we're, I mean, in any novel that you're writing, I think you have to treat your characters as you would treat real people and hopefully have that (laughs) sense of full psychology and emotional depth you know it's it's not no one is a is a plot point for someone else's story it's we're all you know um 
emotional billiard balls <laughs> bouncing off each other. So, um, so one of the real, I know one of the real challenges on um, college campuses to getting uh, people to think about this issue. It is not a challenge to get women to come to the table to talk and think about this issue. Mm-hmm. When I do these um, talks, specifically, it's if it's about consent and sexual assault. The room is full of women, and what's more challenging is um, getting men in the room, and um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but when we're talking about consent and sexual assault, it's it's it can be really challenging, and I think you know the same is is probably true for our readers. You know, a lot of the um, the YA novels out there that. I think deal with sexual assault, people often assume, oh, this is for like, uh, you know, like young women to read. And so um, with regard to tradition, you know, your, your novel, like, do you, did you think about how to capture um, an audience of of boys and young men? Like how, how did you imagine doing that? That's part of the reason why I wanted to have two, two narrators, one young woman and one young man. And so you're getting a story from from both of their perspectives. The young man is involved in the sports culture that sort of perpetuates some of the, you know, darker, grimmer traditions of the school. But he is slowly realizing just what he's a part of by by egging people on, by sliding the yearbook over and numbering, you know, grading photos in the yearbook and things like that how that affects and how that leads to the terrible things that can happen at the end of uh, a night mm-hmm. when there is no consent the 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 depth of the of the trauma and the assault that really comes from the culture that breeds you know a sensibility that that's your goal i think it's really important to to provide a novel that that isn't just about the experience of victimhood because again, that's not the whole story, but also the the sort of the experience of perpetuating the culture that really creates the situations in which these people become victims. I was hoping to invite boys into the conversation through athletics. It's something that's familiar to me, mm-hmm. um, you know, as someone who played three sports in high school, and and I think there are a lot of boys out there who would gravitate towards that half of the story as a mirror. And, you know, as the old sort of adage is now, uh, Dr. Rudin uh, Sims Bishop coined this phrase, mirrors and windows in books. All books should be mirrors and windows. And if this can be a, a mirror for boys on one half, it can be a window into Jules's experience of how she's feeling oppressed by that, that culture. Um, and boys can, can, can therefore maybe empathize by seeing their own story and then empathizing mm-hmm. with the other. Um, and likewise, hopefully, there can be a, a similar experience the other way around with, with young women because I think this is the kind of way in. I, when I hear you say boys don't come to the consent conversations, <laughs> it makes me think that, they're, that they think they're going to be vilified. Um, and so they don't want to walk into a space where they feel like they're going to be vilified. So maybe if we have more opportunities, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I think you're talking about this too in your book, is that there are, there are other ways to begin to bring people into the conversation. Mm-hmm. If you foster the right kind of environment, for example, where the, the, we're talking about it in class, 
as you mentioned in your manifesto, I think that's a way in because then guys don't feel like they have to do something extracurricular. It's a natural part of our everyday conversation. Well, I don't believe in required talks that have anything to do with sex and consent. I think it's the worst possible thing that we can do, even though it's something that every single university is doing. I hope every single university can rethink that if they read my book. One of my biggest surprises when I began to do research about sex on campus were the young men that I spoke to because they gave me a really unexpected story which um, that I heard again and again, which was essentially, I have to perform a certain version of guyness, you know, both for other guys on campus and also other women. Otherwise, people will not think I'm a real man or they're not going to think I'm a real guy or they're, they're like women are going to think I'm weak and other guys are going to make fun of me. And there's a sense of um, I'm not allowed to be vulnerable. I'm not allowed to be, you know, um, emotional. I'm not allowed to desire love or connection. <laughs> and, you know, I have to sort of shun all of those things and I have to be pretty much vulgar and a jerk toward my partners. Like that was sort of the... The, um, the model of guyness that all these men were telling me that they were they were expected to emulate in college. But then they were also saying, but I'm not like that. Like, I am right. this other person. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why, like, that story came out in my research had to do with the fact that, you know, they were either sitting behind their computer writing essays or they were one-on-one with me in a room doing an interview and they never had to see me again. And so there was a kind of privacy and protection in that, um, you know, in that conversation. And I think, you know, one of the important things about, you know, when they're like reading books or like reading your novel or my novels or, you know, um, is that there is a kind of way in which that gives them a space to think through, like a private space to think through all of these issues, which I think is so important. But I also, I think one of the challenges is, you know, how do we get people, both men and women, out of this, these performing roles they're taking up in front of each other. I think one of the questions is how, how do we empower people beyond that kind of performance? And I think it's really tricky with both men and women, but women are expected to be emotional and vulnerable. Yeah. They're, they're allowed to be even if they're also trying not to be in college, but men are really not. And I don't, like, I think it's a real challenge to, to overcome that. Yeah, I feel very fortunate that I had a, a father who was very comfortable with emotions. And I actually feel like that was a real exception in the kind of neighborhood where I grew up. Well, I think we're starving for those kinds of models um, to open up and create emotional space and to think of emotions not as something to to shy away from, but as something to embrace and find a vocabulary for as much as we can list off the statistics of the Mets for the last 20 years. The conversation that you're talking about, though, before about how our novels or books in general can create a kind of private space to begin to reflect on some of these issues Mm -hmm. is, I think, why novels are so essential in the conversation still, because unlike a movie, unlike an essay, sometimes you, you sitting with a novel requires time. You have to invest yourself as you read into the, you know, into the emotional landscape of the characters. You have to invest yourself. And I think there's something really valuable about that time that a novel can offer you and create that, that practice of empathy, which I think is really necessary in this conversation about consent. At least thinking from my own perspective how um, 
consent can't just be a series of rules. It really has to also embrace, you know, empathy. It has to embrace seeing the full human being on the other side of the table from you, um, whatever that might be, in, 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 <laughs> however you're performing that. Because the performance, I think, is, is an act to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and so if, if it's an act to protect ourselves, we need to find ways to protect, do the protection first so we don't need to do the act in some way. Or learn how to like, or learn how to take risks of the heart in some ways. Like I, I remember yeah. asking the next night after I had that conversation with the students about, you know, when they were telling me, you know, it's like a competition to see who can care the least. That's what you know their hookups were. I, I asked a group of students um, that I was speaking to the next night, like, is that really what it's like? And they were all nodding their heads. And then I, I asked them, I was like, so what about? What about you know sexual assault in there and consent? Mm-hmm. And they sort of looked at me like what? Like they hadn't even thought of that. And then I said, you know, why would you like students who they they always care so much about who they are as friends, you know, to each other? They care so much about their friends, and they have such a strong sense of uh, like a relational ethic in those relationships. You know what is going on that um, when it comes to sexual intimacy, all that goes out the window. Like you're not yeah. thinking about it. You're like, what are you so afraid of? And um, you know, they they started listing off like rejection. You know, like they don't want to be called clingy, weak. Like they had all of these associations, um, but all of these fears they yeah. were listing about what happens when you actually risk letting your partner know that you you care about them. And I think somehow we have to walk ourselves back from being like allergic <laughs> to to yeah. that and I love that you brought up the issue of of time and the time it takes to like sit with a novel because I may it makes me think about how I spend so much time talking to college students about the importance of a pause <laughs> in the sense that um, and just learning to pause and stop and think before they make decisions because I think one of the reasons why we're having to have these big cultural conversations about consent and part of why a culture of hooking up just thrives um, on college campuses, which is, of course, a culture of apathy and, like, not caring about your partner, is because everything is so go, 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 do, do, do. Everything is so 24-7. Everybody's rushing. No one's ever stopping. And you know, um, young adults' lives are so stressful and they go so fast, they're so busy. And um, we don't necessarily teach them to stop and think. And so when they get to college and they're at a party and they've had this really intense week and now they're partying hard, they don't stop and think either when, you know, they're dealing with sexual intimacy. And I remember so many stories I got from students where they would, talk about how you know they would, their story of a hookup would be you know I was at a party I was talking to this person you know these were both men and women men and women telling me this I was talking to someone we were drinking and then suddenly we were having sex and I remember the first time I heard that I was like what do you mean suddenly you were having sex and the whole decision making process was absent mm-hmm. and in so many stories that I heard and I just remember thinking that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a sexual assault right. but I remember thinking where like well where is consent in there how do you identify it but also um, where like where did the thinking through about our sexual decision making go like why is it that you know, um, how is it that our speedy, speedy, you know, never stop culture is contributing to 
our inability to just pause a little bit and and think through okay like what do i want here like what does my partner want yeah. here so what you just said is so profound <laughs> i think that it is something that is absolutely missing from so much of our media and maybe not just media maybe this is this is what you're getting at with the the idea that's missing from the conversation at large but that notion of the pause or or how do we depict if we're artists how do we depict those moments of of intimacy where the decisions are being made or how do we slow things down how do we portray the 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 moments that matter most because we're so often capturing the moments that look the most glamorous and those are the moments that are you know the quick cuts of of making out and then the clothes are on the floor or you know whether that's in a book or in a movie or 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 in songs or wherever it might be and i'm not like bashing media for being like promoting sex too much i think it's I, I, as i hear you i'm thinking about oh my god what an opportunity for us all to be creating more media that that highlights those moments the moments of decision making that are beautiful in and of themselves i mean back to real life one of my favorite authors for just thinking about like the meaning of a kiss or the meaning of all of this stuff are yeah. you know jenny hahn's books are totally. you know um the summer i turn pretty series and then to all the boys of love before which is now a movie on netflix yeah. um which so in you know, they they get a, a little bit racy toward the the twelve boys I've loved before as they go on a teeny bit, but um, <laughs> but in for the most part they're they're very innocent yeah. uh, in terms of like sexual content. But in terms of thinking about what does it mean to love somebody, what does it mean to kiss somebody, what does it mean to be rejected, what does it mean to have your heart broken, what does it mean to take risks with your heart? Like mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. really. Um, you know, parses out so many of the complexities of of romance and sexual decision making and making decisions about who you want your partner to be or if you who you want to kiss and why. And, you know, I think so many so many of books like that yeah. are opportunities for um, for young adults to you know, to read and think through those issues, but also for us to sort of draw out um, in a conversation about them yeah. or point out, like, these are actually really useful for a conversation about consent, by the way. Right, <laughs> so. right. No, that makes sense. And and that, you know, as you're mentioning that, makes me think of, in your book, you bring up uh, Antioch College's policy that was the subject of mockery, you know, whatever now, 30 years ago or whatever. Now they're feeling very smug. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Well, but it's interesting because... Part of why that, that why that was you know why the Antioch policy of consent was was a was a joke at the time might relate to what you're talking about right now, and that we were that we don't like to often portray the 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 power of those moments of consent, um, the decision making, the vulnerability that we don't like to portray those moments. But if we saw if we all spent more time watching Jenny Han's movie on Netflix or reading her novels, maybe that Antioch policy wouldn't look so silly maybe it would just feel like oh that makes a lot of sense if you know the part of my life every day the iceberg that's under the water is my emotional life Mm -hmm. that needs to be cared for not just the part that i'm showing everybody that's above water Mm -hmm. that policy makes a lot of sense it's not a joke it's actually very simple um 
I think we somehow though we really we've ended up in a place where um, we are simultaneously culture. With we I don't know who the we is like the mm-hmm. royal we. The um, somehow through culture and society, young adults are receiving the message that they must become callous about sex. So they right. have to be callous about sex and their partners. Which which requires them, yeah, um, which requires them to, you know, tamp down and bury all that, you know, sense of, like, heart and emotion and, you know, yearning for love and connection. So you got to, like, you got to, like, tamp that down and get rid of it. But then at the same time, um, you know, now we're talking so much about about consent and I think in some ways we're teaching it in that same way we're giving them a bunch of words yes means yes no means right. no as right. though that takes care of the issue and that does nothing of course to deal with this issue of the fact that we're we're burying our hearts and or we're, we're trying to and I think in some ways that's that's a similar kind of message and you know, I don't think um, this doesn't mean, of course, that, you know, every single act, you know, experience of sexual intimacy needs to lead to marriage or, or really you know, <laughs> anything in the future. But, you know, I think there are ways for us to think about um, the significance and, and meaning of these encounters to, to who we are and to, um, you know, I, I, I would really love it if the college students I speak to had a better sense of where their own hearts and minds and feelings and yearnings were in relation to the sexual intimacy that they're having. If they had a sense of, um, you know, what is my feeling about this person? What do I want from this person? That sort of pause to think through a little bit about, is this something that is just going to be relatively casual but yet you know we'll have fun and it's meaningful or is this you know is this a person that I want something more from and you know what might that mean what am I risking here you know am I ready for that is it something that I want do they want that from me can we talk about that so you know I really like I wish for um for people to learn to be better I guess critical thinkers about their own hearts and um their yearnings for connection and love in the context of, of sexual intimacy. Yeah, better. I, I like that. Critical thinkers of, of their own hearts is a, is a great phrase. <laughs> um, and I, I think one of the tools for that would be to become better listeners and listening to your own heart, but listening also to, to who you're with. Because I think that's, you know, a, a big part of the, of the conversation around your own heart, I think, has to be the ability to comprehend and maybe, as best as possible, understand what's in someone else's heart. And and so for me, I think that that likewise, what I hope we can teach people is to be better listeners. Um, I think this is why, well, the conversation we're having about the heart and love, but I think it's <laughs> one of the things that makes me love um, the part of my professional life that is writing yeah. novels for, for young adults and middle grade readers. And, you know, I do all this nonfiction work and it's very, very serious. Um, <laughs> and I love it. But I, I also feel like, um, y- you know, the, the novels, the stories that I write are, you know, novels of my heart. There's a way yeah. in which I pour all of those yearnings that I've felt um, in my life into those stories. And I think about, 
you know, the stories that I wish for for my readers. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's something really special about, you know, I love the fact that, you know, in my professional life, it is, you know, it is my academic job to to think about these issues. But both of us also have um, this creative space in which to, you know, really explore them in a different avenue. And um, for me, it's I feel like even though um, you know, I think some people feel like my work is so disconnected. Um, you know, I do all of this nonfiction and then I read all these YA novels. And to me, <laughs> I feel like one is an expression of the other or they're really yeah. in conversation with each other. When you're writing a story, you get to you get to explore all these issues That's, in this very intimate risk taking way. But yet at the as, same time, it's, spa- it's safe. It's a safe space. No, no, absolutely. And I, I say that because I think too often we're 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 taught to be sort of one or the other, and it seems false. We're, we're, we should be able to sit with a, a novel and enjoy a novel and learn from a novel and, and um, gain uh, critical skills of the heart <laughs> from, from a novel. Um, and, and then likewise read, you know, a manifesto on consent on campus and, and use that and apply the same kind of critical thinking in, in a, but in a different way, and that it makes perfect sense. I think that's uh, fantastic, and um, what an interesting thing, in fact, if if on college campuses there were a kind of paired reading <laughs> that were somewhat similar in this way. And mm-hmm. also, I mean, I really, I, I talked about because on campus, I feel like men and women need to write stories in order yeah. to try to get at these issues, and I, yeah. I believe that. I do think that it becomes a space where they can... Um, ex- like a safe space where they can explore some of the most complex issues that they might be afraid to, to talk about. So, When it comes to the future of consent, do you think the future is looking bright? What more do you think has to be done? When looking ahead at where the conversation of consent might be in uh, the future, I, I think to some of the conversations that I've had uh, around race and um, privilege and, um, and power um, in, in our country, and I think of uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s quote, how dare I not have hope for all the work that has been done before me. And it, it, it reminds me that I, um, I should have hope uh, for the future when I'm feeling cynical, um, but also, that requires work. Hope isn't something that just exists out there. I think hope is something that we have to activate and, and we have to put in the work to, to do that. So when I look ahead to the future, and I do have hope that I think that, that conversations of, of consent are shifting, I want to see not only those conversations shifting in media, I want to see real changes in um, management I want to see uh, a much more concerted effort to gender balance in the workplace and at executive levels of management and in um, institutions across the country. And I think if we take those bold steps, then the way that I see the future conversation about consent, I, I, I necessarily see it in a, in a brighter light than right now because I think so much of consent has been stuffed under the, you know, under the table because of the, you know, what we were talking about before about how men perform for each other. And if it's all men in the room, they're not going to talk about consent. 
I think the fact that we're having this conversation now is exciting because it's a conversation I've been waiting for for a long time. I don't think it's been a perfect conversation, but I think it's opened the door in a way that I find hopeful. And I hope we keep <laughs> walking through that door. And, uh, you know, I feel it depends on the day. I feel encouraged in, in general, but I also, I know because I've seen it that for universities at least, um, they have put, you know, structures and mechanisms into place. They have them in place now. So even if um, Title IX gets walked back all the way, uh, they have created these structures, and I think it would be a scandal for them to undo them. It would be very public if they did, because they have had to put them in place. And I would hope that they kept them there, not because they were avoiding scandal, but because they really believe we need to, the, to address this issue. But, um, but time will tell. I think it's been... Um, you know, it fluctuates. And, you know, right now we were, we are all thinking about this and I hope, I hope we see progress, but this is progress in my opinion already. So. As always, we'd like to thank authors Donna Freitas and Brendan Keeley, as well as the cast and crew of the Oxford Comment. Don't forget to subscribe to the Oxford Comment on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. Also, make sure you're following OUP Academic on Twitter and Facebook. Stay tuned for our next mini-sode, where we will explore how university bookstores approach resources and topics surrounding consent. We would like to provide some services, as well as their phone numbers in today's episode description. They include information for RAIN, National Rape Crisis Helpline, Rape and Domestic Violence Services, and Rape Crisis Europe. I'm Erin Katie Meehan. Thanks for listening.